If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, dark urban fantasy author, Holly Lyne. Hello and welcome to episode number 69 of the Great Writers Share podcast, a podcast where every week we hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join us on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, roar and bounce. My name's Holly Line and it's the 2nd of January 2021 as of recording. So... My personal update. Um, I've been enjoying a bit of a break over the festive period, playing lots of games and chilling out with my family. However, like many writers, I seem to have an aversion to complete rest, so I have also been planning out 2021 and keeping my toes in the pool of podcasting. As I start getting back into work now, I'm going to be working on what was previously known as the Nightmare Project, uh, but on Dan's insistence, I have to stop calling it that. Uh, (laughs) I'm trying to cultivate a more positive relationship with that work in progress. It's actually a passion project. It's a bit different from what I've written before. It's more personal and introspective, with much less action and fighting. So I'm not quite sure where it sits in the market, and I haven't quite figured out where the story needs to start. So I need to figure that out and I need to stop worrying about how I'm going to sell it and just write the story that's inside me and wanting to come out. And that's my challenge for January. Now onto our question of the week. Over on Facebook and in our Slack group for patrons, I asked, how have other forms of storytelling affected your writing? In the Facebook group, Edwin said, I've used game simulation systems to help choreograph action sequences, both on the immediate scale and on large-scale battle actions. For fine details, I have play-acted the specific action to get a feel for how it should look before writing it out, which I love. Um, Samantha Wright says, This question reminds me of Laura's movies that shaped my storytelling that she does on Instagram. I highly recommend checking it out, and I second that. Um... Laura's Instagram posts are fantastic. Um, Sam goes on to say, I guess I'd say that for me, TV and film shaped my view on visuals and dynamic. So when I write, I find myself looking through that lens a lot. I am exactly the same. I am very visual in my writing. Um, And Laura says, fan fiction for me has been a cornerstone of my writing and I cannot recommend it enough. Allowing yourself to play in someone else's world where the blocks are already there can really help you experiment with your writing. 
I was part of the RP community on Tumblr for a long time too, and that taught me a lot. You had to be a master of a lot of things on there. Graphics, website design, storytelling, bio writing, advertising, pitching. It also teaches you to develop a thick skin. Though I've had some brutal comments online, I've also had some amazing positivity and people enjoy my work. It not only gave me confidence, but it really grounded me in the belief that you have to have, you have to believe in yourself. Absolutely true. On Slack, Yanni said, I love movies and television series. I love watching how they work through the story and the beats, even if I can semi-predict what's going to happen. I take that as being on the storytelling level that I know what could or should happen. I've always been a visual person, so theatre, cinema, art, all of it, it inspires me. Dan said, I've rediscovered a love of games with stories to tell. And he lists some of the games that he's been playing. And they all revolve around solid storytelling that helps to inspire my work when I've grown tired of reading, which rarely happens, let's be honest. Absolutely. So thank you, everybody, for your comments. I'm sure you're going to love this interview with Chris Allen. He's a games and short fiction writer who... I have known for years and it was a great pleasure to sit down and talk in depth with him about his varied and exciting writing career. In the interview, we go deep into his experiences of designing and writing role-playing games, working on licensed lines and coping with the fans, and how his experience of working in the games industry shapes his enjoyment of the games as a player. Before we get into the interview, a great big welcome to our new patron, Victoria L.K. Williams. Thank you for supporting the show and welcome to the group. If you would like to be part of our Patreon community, you can join over at patreon.com forward slash greatwriterssshare, where for as little as $1 a month, you can get involved in our behind-the-scenes group, benefiting from early ad-free access to episodes of the show, join our private Slack channel, ask upcoming guests any of your questions, and get involved in our monthly Q&A, where all four of us get together to answer your questions and chat about writing. So if you like the idea of upping your author career and getting all of that good stuff, then one more time, that's patreon.com forward slash greatwriterssshare. And now, without any further ado, let's dive into the interview with the one and only Chris Allen. Chris Allen has written, edited and designed dozens of tabletop gaming products since 2005, including role-playing games, board games and miniatures games, and shows no signs of stopping anytime soon. He has contributed to major game lines such as The World of Darkness and Trinity Continuum, and worked on licensed tie-ins for a broad spectrum of properties including Starship Troopers, Babylon 5 and 2000 AD. His design work extends to live-action role-playing, where he served on the plot team for the major UK fest LARP Empire for several years. Chris is also a published short fiction author and is currently writing a tie-in novella for Trinity Continuum Aeon. Chris believes that tabletop games, albeit played increasingly via virtual tabletops, provide an important creative outlet for their participants and a different method of interacting with the resulting in-the-moment fiction to that traditionally provided by other forms of story media. Chris was born in Thailand but these days lives in Bristol with his wife and two children. Welcome, Chris. Oh, hello. So, um... 
A very quick um, background. Um, Chris and I have known each other for many years. <laughs> yes, good few years now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, mm. So thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a real treat. Um, but can you start by telling us a bit about your writing journey? My writing journey? Um, that's an interesting one because... Um, where does it start there's there's some you know some aspects to game writing for example a bit different to fiction writing and in terms of where that started on that um they they kind of come from two different places uh but for the game writing for me where did my journey start my journey started uh when i was very small and i had a babysitter uh who um as part of her things for entertainment, she did this. She made a fun, fun little maze with you know grid paper and pen, uh, and she ran me through this maze of tricks and traps and monsters as a fun game, uh, which was the first introduction I ever had to you know a very basic form of role playing games. When I was probably seven, a cousin of mine gave me, and I don't know if if you uh, remember these yourself, a fighting fantasy game book. Mm-hmm. Uh, caverns of the snow witch and i was entranced by that um first ever sort of real one of those you know that i, I, that I uh, came into contact with and i absolutely loved it i consumed an awful lot of those as a kid um there was a I remember the rack of books in the local bookshop i used to go to as often as i could with my pocket money to get to get another one of those when i'd saved up that then moved me into you know gaming other forms of role-playing games and the like as as a, as a teenager and uh, that then developed into writing in game terms about, well, when I was um, 18, uh, there was at the time a bit of a shift in the games market. Um, the uh, traditionally published, uh, the big, if you like, the big name role-playing game, Dungeons & Dragons, which obviously a lot of people have heard of, especially today, had changed ownership and was having a new edition published by a company called Wizards of the Coast. And as part of that, they opened it up. Uh, they opened up an open license for people to create material to go along with that game uh, when i was 18 i started producing if you like uh, material fan material for that kind of thing and i had my first work published by a company called en publishing in 2004 or 5 uh or there, there or thereabouts uh, and then that moved into working at a company called mongoose publishing as an editor and then designer writer and, and since then it all sort of you know it's it's all gone on snowballed from there my more conventional writing uh journey has been a little bit different um uh it's intertwined with the game writing very much so you know get my i'm a big fan of fantasy and science fiction and speculative fiction that kind of thing which is often very core material for for inspiration for role-playing games and the like uh but uh i didn't do an awful lot of independent kind of you know short story writing or anything while while younger i did i remember writing at school some sort of fantasy fiction or science fiction things as part of writing as well i was given free choice of what to do in a writing assignment um but it didn't really turn itself into fiction writing independently so much for me i was channeling a lot of that creative energy into things like the role-playing games i was running which obviously for yourself holly and i ran a group with Mm -hmm. with yourself in it uh and and then sort of sideways into game writing um when I well about yeah about seven years ago I suppose um, I was made redundant from a job in an insurance company just about the time I was getting married uh, about to get married to my now wife and I had a several weeks at home with absolutely nothing to do and uh, an incredible amount of creative energy bottled up after having been working at an insurance company mm-hmm. for a year and for the civil service in the jo- in the department of work and pensions for a year before that and um, that was the first time I wrote a sort of novel length work. 
Uh, it just sort of came out over the few weeks. So I was knocking out between three and 8,000 words a day. And bam, you know, there's suddenly there's this whole manuscript length work. Uh, and while that's not something I've gone back to, um, I have then since then started doing more fiction writing and, uh, and started to get things published on that kind of front and, and and then started to intertwine that with the game writing as well mm-hmm. so the game journey now for me the writing journey has brought game writing and sort of fiction writing together to the point where i'm writing tie-in fiction for games and the like as well mm. um which is a development i'm quite happy about uh, i'm really excited to see where it takes me next yeah so um you kind of hinted at you know where the the game writing came from but can you um mm. elaborate a bit more on that i mean how did you um start getting published by you know like the, the big big publishers <laughs> well it, there's there's a bit of um the the, the industry uh the role-playing games and tabletop industry is is an odd duck and it's changed quite a lot over the the decades um so uh so so how what happened with me then is a bit different to how it is is now but um because this, as I said, was the the rise of this open license for writing tie-in material with with Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, overnight, a, a booming industry sprung up, producing what was called third-party material for the game, and players and people running games were snapping this stuff up. And it, it's a slightly it's it's one of those situations where um, I kind of had a I suppose eyes bigger than mouth kind of situation where where I was going to write a short article about some uh, steampunk. Uh, gaming elements for a friend's electronic magazine they were doing at the time uh, and they said hey chris you know you've got an interest in this stuff could you maybe like, write an article okay cool and i started writing an article and i didn't sort of stop i kept on expanding it and i rapidly became aware that what i was writing wasn't an article it was a whole book um essentially which became steam and steel which i uh i wrote and then i thought what the hell am i going to do with this now um, to my fortune, I went to um, a, a chap at Ian Publishing at the time who was um, who one of the people who was handling submissions and the like. And I said, I've, I've written this written this book. Do you want to publish it? And to my amazement, they said, well, actually, yeah, we think it's, we think it's quite good. Um, uh, writing uh, this kind of game material is a bit different to writing a, a book. You know, this was full, this was, like, I don't know how many thousands, thousands, tens of thousands of words it was. But, um, you know, it's, it's a bit more, I suppose, um, What's the word sectioned down in terms of what you're writing you know you're writing mm-hmm. subsections of different things I, f- I find it very easy to write large amounts on that compared to fiction which requires a lot more planning and thought in terms of an ongoing flow um so i had this book and and uh, and luckily had them pick it up that then got me some other gigs with people who were interested in in they were creating games with sort of victoriana or steampunk themes who's a headhunted me for that um after I left university, uh, I was very lucky in that Mongoose Publishing, one of the new role-playing companies that opened up, was looking for new editors, uh, and I applied and I got the job. Uh, that sort of moved me into doing editing work and layout and all sorts of other things uh, relating to game production and into working with licenses as well, uh, and not just role-playing games, tabletop, miniatures games and board games as well. And... Um, so, so for me, that early stage was, um, to a certain extent, have my creativity kind of demanded to be made into something, and then I kind of I just shopped it around till I found uh, till I found someone who wanted to do something with it. Um, I then I had a bit of a lull for quite a few years uh, when I was focused on other career aspects rather than writing um, before I came back into the industry again, and 
uh, and how I got back in that time after having not really been deeply involved with the community on the creation and industry side for a while was um, a game called, which again, Holly will be familiar with uh, because it's something we, we played together. It's Wealth of Forsaken, uh, which was a horror, modern horror game created by um, a White Wolf who created the World of Darkness games and all that lot. And uh, at the time, second editions of these games were being were about were in the process of being created. And I, a friend of a friend, was a, um, a developer on a different line. So they uh, had some in there. They advised me to put in a submission. Um, I submitted some material and got pulled in on the development team for the second edition of that game. And that then, in the intervening years, developed in terms of going from you know a junior writer brought in to help to a sort of senior writer being given more um, more and more work up to a now a developer role with that particular company, which is Onyx Path Publishing, um, and then spreading my wings out into other companies, uh, other freelance work as well, um, which which is a mixture of people who are interested in the kind of work I've done before. Uh, who like my stuff and just opportunistically watching for you know adverts for new roles um, participating in the online communities where a lot of this discussion goes on now and watching out for opportunities with new books or new projects that are mm. happening and and just putting myself forward for them mm. so um you mentioned about working on the licensed properties um, mm-hmm. and you have in your bio, you mentioned Starship Troopers and Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that experience? Um, that is very odd, <laughs> very odd. Um, but because, um, you know, a lot of the gaming industry uh, is and has been for a while fairly, I'm not, not going to say low budget, but it's not big. Uh, but, but I mean, we're not talking about massive corporations, apart from a few heavyweights. You know, it's it's small companies doing work with um, these licenses. And my impression is, and I'm not saying about these particular ones, but in general, a lot of um, license holders who license games out for role-playing games have in the past, maybe not so much today due to the growth of the industry, but in the past been sort of thinking it's it's a bit of a, yeah, whatever, you know, we're not that fussed about it. Someone wants to make a role-playing game, whatever that is, sure, we get some money and they get to go off to their thing, which means you're not really working at kind of, a, it's not like working on a big computer game with a license, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a case of um, getting given some files with whatever, the, presumably the people at the other end have got in their standard box of graphical things for the lines and stuff. You know, um, uh, So on the one hand, you're kind of working with um, companies who are not, at least back then, they weren't always massively engaged i suppose with the creation of these of these lines of these products um and working a bit on sometimes not the scraps of what they're offered but it's not you know it's not sort of them going massively out of their way to 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 help you out uh combined with the other end of it which was the you know legal teams and licenses who look very closely to make sure you are adhering to all the parameters of what their licensed products must look like mm. uh, down to making sure you have the correct shade of black on the cover not just any shade of black but the <laughs> correct shade of black uh, trade dress standard formations that kind of thing um in general working with big licenses i didn't really find that there was an awful lot of um fuss about what you were putting in the product itself as long as you were you know sticking to what the general themes were supposed to be with a lot of these things you know you're you have writers creating entirely new material relating to a license um 
because they're trying to fill a role-playing game book with a bunch of cool stuff for people to use in their games. And that detail just isn't there in the licensed property as it stands generally because the writers of the, the show or the books haven't had to go into that kind of detail or catalogue all that stuff. They don't need, they don't care about it. Um, so you have role-playing game writers making up the stuff whole cloth. And it was pretty rare to run into situations where someone at the other end would go, oh, no, we don't like what this this these five types of drink you've decided a bar in the Zocalo on Babylon 5 serves. They're not, they're not going to do that as long as you're not doing anything wildly egregious. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there are some notable exceptions in the history of role-playing games, like um, the uh, West End games and the Star Wars role-playing games, which, as I understand it, basically became something equivalent to a setting Bible for the writers of later Star Wars media, where they then would get the, they were they were given books they were given the role-playing game books for the new shows they were creating saying here you go here's your reference material because these guys have gone out and they've done all this detail for it so we're you know we're referencing back to that that's not the usual way it works out though you know (laughs) um so yeah it's, it's interesting you kind of feel aware of the limitations on what you're doing because at the end of the day you are working on someone else you're working in someone else's sandpit mm. and they are like to have very strong ideas of what goes on in the general shape of that but there's a lot of stuff that's very um uh, flexible in how you portray and how you create new material and new f- fiction if you like around mm. an existing source of fiction um yeah, yeah it's it's um it's interesting stuff. Uh, I think probably the most exciting one for me in a way was working, um, we did a re-release of the Thud board game for Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's one of the high points for my, my license work because um, what I was doing wasn't very complex. In that case, I was just doing the layout for the box for the new edition and we were doing some playtesting rules to make sure they actually worked but it did mean that i got to see the uh, the new art the artwork for thud the book before most other people did which mm. was uh, you know for a young lad not not long out of university uh, and seeing uh, the work of one of my you know my big time favorite authors having that i suppose that inside scoop of getting to see something like that was a, a, a bit of a, a real buzz yeah oh cool so did you have to spend a lot of time um, devouring the original source material or were you left pretty much to take it your own interpretation varied and it varied quite a lot depending on the, the license and the nature of the writers or the work i was working with um we were doing for instance we were doing 2000 ad um rebellions uh you know the, the 2000 ad uh magazines comics um we had some stuff related to them i think we had a role-playing game and i was more involved with a, a miniature skirmish game we were doing about the the gangs in in mega city one with judge dread and we had a massive, massive stack of 2000 AD comics and magazines and graphic novels um, there as, as just physical reference still to go through. Um, and, to, and that setting is gonzo. It is bananas. You know, I, I um, was looking for a good image to put on the cover of a supplement and I found a mutant guy with a chicken head for some reason. I don't even know why. Like, that that's going to be my cover for the book, you know? Um, so that was, that, that felt like going diving into a treasure trove. You know, you, you, you pick up this, this backlog of weirdness and you didn't know what awesome thing you were going to pull out. Um, whereas, you know, I think some, some things like um, uh, Babylon five, for example, there when the work I was doing as an editor on that, I was really relying a lot on um, writers who were very 
immersed in the the law and the and, and the, the the fiction and the media um, but at the same time we had limitations there on the artwork we could use because we were using frames we were largely using stills and frames from the show for our artwork in the books and if we didn't have a good still or frame of something in from the show we couldn't do artwork of it which put a sort of reverse um, limitation a practical limitation on what we could put in the books and how we could illustrate it you know uh, writing is a massive part of, of games, mm. no doubt about it. But the graphical element is huge. Mm. The visual element, the artwork, is is massive. Really important for a lot of people who, are, who you know who, who who consume these products and who enjoy these works of fiction. Mm. Um, and and it's it is slightly odd to go. Well, the only th- only artwork we've got of this is is a very blurry picture in episode three of season two. It's just we we can't stick that in a book, uh, and we don't have any way of getting other any other art within the limits of the how the art for this product is being done. Mm. Um, so there was that element of really needing to get to grips of the limitations from our point of view in respect to the the fiction uh, and the law as well. Um, the, yeah, so it, it's interesting in that respect that it required a lot of familiarity with the source material, but it also required an awareness of what we could, what we practically could implement from it as well. Mm. Did any of the work influence your um, enthusiasm for, you know, like Babylon Five? Um. Yeah, it, it not always in a good way um, mm. because. To a certain extent, sometimes if you you know, it's when how heavy the workload is, you know, you can burn out and, and what you're doing is work can become work and it can stop being enjoyable so much. There is you know, the the fifteenth time you've checked over a draft fiddling with the pictures of these bloody spaceships from some bloody ip with some stupid thing and you're like, i don't care about this anymore i just want this book out the door i'd never want to see one of these guys again you know um uh, you know, with miniatures games, when you're making, you're having to get miniatures battered back and forth and things go wrong with that. Uh, you know, things come back from factories, gone horribly wrong. There, there's lots of ways that it can influence you. And, and so some of that's from the problems you run into and some of it's just oversaturation uh, mm. of you of yourself with a particular IP. Um, there comes a point where you feel like, not just that you know it inside and out, but you don't want to know it inside and out anymore. You know, it's just, it, it, it can drain the magic out of something a bit if it's mm. if it's a day in day out workload in that respect mm. um so yeah so yes and not always positively <laughs> yeah does a bit of time and distance from a project restore some of the magic yes yes it does <laughs> um and that's twofold i mean that's partly due to working environment and distance from the thing itself if you are in a very stressful work environment as i was back then with where we were producing very high rates of uh, material in because the because the role playing game market had exploded and there was ravenous appetite for this material and we were producing loads of it so we were working very hard and working very fast and that added to burnout with some of it um but also the distance is it, it's twofold i mean i don't know about you but when i'm writing fiction sometimes i write fiction and i literally i can't touch it i, I don't want to look at i've done this and I'm like, oh god um one of the real pleasures i get these days with role-playing games is is i write my drafts i put them in i send them in and i'm like, oh and then i come back to them you know when the book's released 
or uh, and I can see, especially with lovely art, some artist has done amazing art, and I said, and I read through it and I go, you know what, this actually isn't bad, is it? <laughs> I actually feel quite keen about this again. You know, reading my own stuff sometimes revitalizes me as well, mm. and, and other people's excellent contributions as well, and that bit of distance really does does help, I think. Um, but also just having a slower work, you know, I've, these days, my, my, my output rate is, is lower overall in terms of products published, yeah, somewhat lower, but, um, it's much less intensive. Uh, it's much less, it, you know, much less wearing out. Um, so I, at less risk of that kind of burnout as well. Mm. How do you cope with fan reactions? Oh God. So, uh, <laughs> Role-playing games are notoriously bad for their fan communities. That's a bit of a that's a bit unfair of me because they're also notoriously good. You get fantastic fan communities, you get fantastic fan interaction. It, to some extent, the, the steps between a role-playing game designer and writer is to and the base in the person on the forum saying this is good or bad is, is less than in some other industries. Um some games have notorious fiction uh, so fan communities around flame wars about the most ridiculous things some of which i have and am working on at the moment and um there's there's a couple of ways i mean firstly you can just not deal with it like i sometimes do by which i mean i i end up going oh god oh god i'm going to release this book and they're going to hate it these guys are going to hate it because i've changed it from how it used to be and these guys are going to hate it because i haven't changed it enough um <laughs> You know, uh, that that is a genuine concern with a book I'm writing on at the moment, which I can't really talk about due to NDAs, but it has a uh, has a very vo- uh, you know, vocal community um, who are not shy of letting their opinions be known. And uh, yeah, and it's a problem, um, uh, you know, and, and in this day and age of social media, it can be a real problem. You know, the reactions sometimes on Twitter and stuff, they're, they're miserable. Uh, and it's not always unfair. It's not always unjustified. People get very passionate about these things. And they're often vocal because they care. But at the same time, it you know, the, let's, let's face it, a lot of social media interactions and communities these days, they have a very unhealthy segment as well. Mm. And that that is a part of the fan community interaction with, with role-playing games, war games board games um some of my colleagues i mean they 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 are just like water off a duck's back you know they go they they're they're, they're, there's nothing you do do about it whatever you do people are gonna gonna yeah someone was gonna be angry on the internet about it um you just have to learn to laugh it off and go well i'm the person who's making this and you're not you're the one in the position getting angry about it so hey you know who's doing better here um I prefer, I like, though, I like to interact with fan communities um, and some of the ones involved with are, very, are great. And I like to talk about problems fans have with products so, so that we can kind of improve them and do better, mm-hmm. um, which does does run the risk of, you know, getting caught. Now, I'm lucky. I'm a white guy. Um, I, I'm not, you know, a, a white straight guy. So it is very noticeable that my colleagues who are women, people of colour, queer, etc., get a lot worse than I do. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's simply an unfortunate element even in a lot of the communities now. But even for me, it can be um, daunting, shall we say. So how to deal with it? Sometimes you've got to be correct. You've got to be tactical about the segments of the communities you don't listen to or you cut yourself away from for your own health and well-being. Um, I think it's good to interact with the fan communities that are healthy and cultivate a good relationship there so that you can get a good feeling for how they're feeling and why they're feeling and 
you know, often I've found that people, maybe they respond not so well to something immediately, but you engage with them and they rapidly diffuse because they realize actually you had a reason for what you were doing. Um, Role-playing games and things like that do have the advantage that it's not, you know, what's in a book is for you to use at the table and your games and changes you see fit. So you can say, hey, if you don't like it, that's fine. And here's why it's not a problem if you just change it, you know, which is a bit harder if you've got, if you've dumped on a, a huge novel, you can't say, just ignore the middle first, guys, if you don't like it, you know. Um, so there's that kind of, um, it's about it's about healthy interactions and I suppose trying to, to more figure out the models that you, you, you follow in that respect on things like social media. Um, and sometimes being ready to just go, just walk away from the online flames and look after yourself as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of a <laughs> tongue-in-cheek question. I hope you'll take it the right way. Aren't you okay. basically being paid to write fan fiction? Oh, everyone who writes is ultimately being paid to write fan fiction, aren't they? I mean... <laughs> What is J.R. Tolkien's works, but ultimately a bunch of mythic fan fiction? So, yeah, yeah anyone who writes is being paid to write fan fiction, uh, except what we're doing is less fan fiction and more giving the tools for other people to create their fan fiction in mm. the moment. While I do write fiction pieces for some of these game lines, um, you know, a lot of what we're writing is setting and game mechanics designed to give the optimum experience in play for a theme or a concept, whether that's horror or fantasy or adventure or epic science fiction or whatever. But with a role-playing game, the, the levels of the fiction that you're interacting with are a bit different to, to writing a book. Because obviously, on the one hand, we're writing a book, but it's not a novel. It's not a, it's not a, sort of a, a conventional fiction piece. We're doing a bunch of research. We're building a game. And that game has to be tested, it has to be played, it has to be make sure the, the mechanics, you know, in many ways it's a machine. The machine is made up of fiction and it's made up of narrative and it's made up of things. We're trying to make sure the whole thing functions and operates. Mm. And there is that element of interaction with the fiction at the writer level. We are then giving it to people to use. And you know, often a role-playing game, for example, has a has a, a someone called a games master or a storyteller who's going to run the game for some other people. And that person interacts with the fiction and they start to take what we've given them, this these these recipes we've given them, if you like, and they start to use it with their preferred ingredients. And they build, they start to interact with a new form of the fiction when they build something they're going to use with their group. So let's say you're playing a modern horror game about vampires and we've given you this book about how to play an awesome game, modern horror with vampires. And the person who's going to be the store the games master for that is then going, right what are the components i want to put in this i want to put, set it in this city and these are some of the themes i want to pull out that i think my players are going to think is awesome you know we've got one guy who loves the sort of blood and splatter rip and tear so we're going to have that splatterpunk gore element in there and we've got this one person who's she's really into the investigation so i want to get in that sort of you know horror but investigation murder investigation stuff and you, they're, they're pulling all these pieces and they're building in their mind uh, and they're building in front of them in their in their notes or their, their theoretical idea of the game a fiction of their own mm. That then goes to the gaming table, and this is something which you know, a lot of games will call, if you like, the 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 um, the, the fiction really for, for gaming is what happens at the gaming table. What happens when you put a bunch of people playing their characters, pushing their ideas, exploring this narrative space that is unfolding in real time among them of what's happening in, in it's it's very different to a conventional way of telling a story mm. um, because it's it's happening in that moment. It's unfolding in ways that you may have a rough guide of how you want it to go, but you can't predict exactly how it's all going to turn out mm. um you know a lot of games use randomizers anyway but even if you take all the randomizers out of a role-playing game you take out all the dice you take out all the cards 
the interactions between people, the sudden ideas, the twists, the turns they give their characters, you, you can't predict how that's going to pan out. And the story that comes out of that is new and unique and something no one beforehand has completely foreseen. Even if the, the games, games Master has a strong idea of how the scenes of this are going to go, they can never tell exactly how it's going to play out. So if that's fan fiction, then fan fiction is pretty damn cool. Um, <laughs> It's a lot of fun, and it, and, and it creates amazing in-the-moment experiences hmm. uh, and surprises uh, and twists and turns that no one has really seen coming. There's a, there's a fourth layer to it then as well, which does veer more into the conventional fan fiction element there, which is of the aftermath. It's, it's how people tell people, uh, other people, about the games they've had. You know, a bit of a, a, a meme or a stereotype about gamers going, let me tell you about my character. It's true, though. People talk to each other about the games they've played in, and they tell stories derived from those moments in the fiction at the table. And these stories are themselves new, new information. They're new stories. They're this person's perspective on what happened, what they thought was great, what they thought was awesome and that in a way is, is closest to conventional fan fiction because it is someone sort of taking their idea of it and, and turning it around you know from a different perspective mm -hmm. and telling you about it um but it's if you listen to someone telling you about this awesome game they once played in which these amazing things happened and people get so animated and enthused it really matters to them mm -hmm. and that itself is like i said it's the sort of the final form of storytelling of many layers of storytelling that comes out of role-playing games mm -hmm. so um yeah if, if that's fan fiction, I'm happy to be a fan fiction writer, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Great answer. Um, so <laughs> it's quite a collaborative way of telling stories. And yeah. I mean, how much collaboration is there at the production end of that? You know, mm. those, those many layers. It varies a lot and it depends on the kind of game you're trying to make and who's involved. You know, um, uh, some some games or indie games, they've got very small numbers of people contributing. Maybe it could even just be one person doing the entire writing. They have a core idea. They know how they're going to do it. They create it. So the collaboration there is just purely in their own mind. But then they put it out there for people to play with and that's when it all kicks off. Mm. And that when you put a game out there, you're instantly getting feedback um, that you can fold back into it. You know, if you if you publish um, a novel, obviously it's out there and you can change it later, but it's not really such an iterative process. But with games, you can put an early model out there and go, guys, I'm making a game uh, really niche. It's about how people feel. You know, it's a game about feelings of isolation at Christmas and how you come to that and people meeting about. I, I, that sounds odd, but there are indie games that are hyper narrow, exploring this kind of interesting space. So of specific feelings, specific emotions, specific settings. And you throw it out there and it comes back and people play and they go, well, it doesn't really feel very, I'm not getting that Christmas vibe, you know, and you can take it back and you can fill it and throw it back out there. If you're working as a one or two man band, you can get that very rapid iterative process with playtesters going. Mm. and with sort of the communities going um bigger you know bigger companies or bigger operations are generally um keeping that more internal and it's very collaborative because you you have large numbers of people writing a book mm. and you you need them to talk to each other <laughs> otherwise <laughs> you know you get a kind of stitched together monstrosity where clearly 10 people were all writing slightly different interpretations of the of what's going on um so just as a sort of example you know book uh, for books that i'm developing at the moment you know, a process i'm using um I, I would be a developer on a book and, we, and this would involve either a game idea or book idea i've pitched to the company or one that has been pitched by someone else and i've been asked to, to develop and the first step of that is creating an outline and a bit like i mean it's a bit, it's, it's like creating a 
plot outline for a fiction book in a way you are mapping out what's going to be in this product and there's two elements to that there's the actual skeleton itself obviously there's we're going to chapter one uh you know it's going to be about this place chapter two is about the game mechanics relating to that chapter three is either this or the other element though is all about theme tone mood what the writers have to do be doing and not be doing this is the point where you remind them talk to each other but it's also where you say things like you know don't write massively offensive racist stuff please or you know don't or keep this thing in mind don't you know all, all these elements of um advice that go into the mix it's project management uh, of the writing team but it's also you know the, this kind of collaboration on creating this book um and then you, you're putting out to the writers and a lot of what i'm working on is there's not a straitjacket on the writers you know we're not saying you have to write this bit of stuff and every detail of this is already in another book somewhere and you have to conform to seven other books in the line if you're putting weapon mechanics in you have to have all 17 types of spear from a book three years ago you know it's nothing like that it's a case of hey write me cool occult horror about sorcerers in the modern age and i want you to write the bit that's set in in um you know Bulgaria, right? Well, this is a book about European sorcerers, and you're going to be doing the bit about Bulgaria, okay? So what I want is I want a well-researched piece that draws on real-world occult folklore and sensitively ties in. Now, you there, you're doing Hungary, Hungarian occult stuff, okay? And so I would also like you to talk to each other if there's any you know, overlap. So you're kind of getting, what you want to do is get the writers all chatting. Mm. Batting ideas around. Someone goes, I've got this cool idea, but I can't fit it into anything. That in my section does anyone else want to use it and um and threads grow from that in, in the best books threads grow from those communications and those collaborations into interpretations of the theme and the mood that you've set out into the outline that now run in a concrete form through the book you know when the writers take hold of a, a manifestation they've just they've thought up of oh well, this is a great way we can show this theme and then they they thread it to onto each other you know and they they talk to it and they, and they build this sort of up from the ground up so um, and from a, if you like, a practical point of view, often there's playtesting, uh, there's proofreading, editing, playtesting stages, which are about banging the draft into you know more solid shape, both from a readability stage, but also from a playability stage. There's no point having the most beautifully written role-playing game book if everyone reads it and goes, this makes no sense. The actual rules of the game don't work. Um, so you get collaboration there with that being batted forth. And, and one of the roles of a developer or whatever other role is managing the book is to take feedback and obviously feed it back to the writers and get them to, you know, like an editor for a, a fiction novel, get that back to a writer in a, in a way that they're going to take on board and act or in a way that's going to be constructive. You know, you don't want to go back to someone who's painstakingly written 10,000 words of intricate rules on something you've asked them to do and go, sorry, it's crap. These guys say it's rubbish. Just fix it. You know, that, that's not helpful to anyone. You need to come back to them and say, here are some specific problems we've run into. We like what you've done here, but this needs fixing. Talk to this other writer to make sure your section's into it and, and guide the And then you need to actually guide the writer to do that as well, not just leave them to it and leave them hanging. Mm. So um, role-playing game books of any size are collaborative projects that require a lot of management, essentially. Mm. Um, it's sometimes, if you like, you've had rock star writers, if you like, writers with great cachet in communities, who are the kinds who you've had a publisher go, just go away and write me 100,000 words of game and we'll publish it. You know, But that's not generally <laughs> how it works. No. generally it's a case of you are part of a group and you are all contributing together towards making this thing real and realizing it mm. um so yeah i think it's it has to be unless unless it's a very small 
work it has to be collaborative at every level to make a functional product at the end of it a functional piece of work for someone to read and enjoy and play with and uh, and think and sort of enrich their lives with mm. what most often comes first building the system or creating the um the creative around that mm. that's I, I, there isn't really a single answer to that because the scope of games is so big mm. um a lot of the time especially with licenses obviously you have someone going licensing an existing property so if you like the setting has already kind of come first which mm. then means the people creating the game are going right well how do we make a game that best delivers the setting so they're they're, mm. they're working on the mechanics first but the setting that's only because the setting's already there um a, a lot of games are created because someone has a cool idea and they go i want to play revolutionary france but instead of aristocrats they're vampires <laughs> right uh that's got a bit and and, and then you need to kind of you need to actually make that setting actually a setting you can build the mechanics for so you know what you're building mechanics for you need to at least have a skeleton of the themes that you want to deliver in play otherwise you're going to create an incoherent mess mm-hmm. um i personally as a game designer have ended up in situations where my involvement with the project is mechanics first because that's what i specifically have been hired to do mm-hmm. um i created some for a british folk horror game recently where while there's a very brief outline of the setting overall you know a whole chunk of the writers were working on um the 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 scenarios of play and i was writing the rules mechanics uh entirely separately and by myself um uh which is an interesting thing because i knew enough about obviously what we were doing what we were aiming for to make a set of mechanics that would support horror scenarios um but my experience was a bit different to my usual one where i was i was basically creating and iterating rules and game systems and chucking old ones out bringing new ones in because the um the client had quite a specific idea of the play experience they wanted with these rules that from a rule aspect rules perspective but they didn't know what the how the rules should work mm-hmm. so i was creating showing them showing them saying we've probably got a problem here yeah okay we'll change that and i'm taking back to myself again rewriting to a slightly new system back out what's the problem now back to me rewrite again um so it's about three iterations of of very intensive rules writing mm. and i had almost no interaction directly with the fiction writing itself um obviously i was trying to keep the people who were writing the setting and fiction scenarios updated as the changes so they knew what they were supposed to be folding into their scenarios but um so so generally i think actually think about it, i think generally setting will be coming first the real exceptions to that are what are called the generic systems mm. um you know a lot of role-playing games are about a specific media tie-in or theme or a, or a kind of cool idea but you do get some role-playing games that are, you can use this for anything you can use this role-playing game for knights in armor science fiction modern urban action like GURPS the generic universal role-playing system and fate and things like that and I suppose for them um there is that element of um the rules coming first because that's primarily what you're getting is you are getting a toolkit you're getting Mm. rules toolkit to build everything else off of yeah that's not to say even if you do go setting first that the rules are back uh are thrown back one of the big games of recent decades um is apocalypse world and powered by the apocalypse systems um which was a mass quite a big paradigm shift in terms of how the rules mechanics support the themes and mood in play. It worked quite differently to how a lot of previous games worked and has had a massive impact on design since. And it's created all sorts of, you know, um, inspired 
games mm. uh, uh, using those semi mechanics, adapting them. And while Apocalypse World is obviously a game about playing in a post-apocalyptic setting, um, in no way are the mechanics for that a kind of a secondary thought. They're absolutely the, the uh, core. Uh, they're at the core of everything the game does is about mm. how do you use the mechanics to support this setting in play at every moment and really reshaping it in that respect. Mm. Um, so yeah, sorry, a bit of waffling answer on that one because it's <laughs> a bit of a messy. Uh, no, no, it's a sort of a bit of a messy topic due to the, the rather uh, messy nature. of If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. The industry. Mm. Do you think um, there is a sort of feedback loop for you as a developer and a gamer in that one has improved the other for you and does it go both ways yes um well yeah ish so as a developer and as a writer i find playing these games enormously important um there are people who do a minimum who don't really play the games they write very much um but for me it's vital uh, both from a ultimately how how better am i going to know how the game plays and what the issues are and what is great about them if i'm not actually playing them mm. I can write anything on a bit of paper. Uh, I can throw out whatever's in my brain as, uh, for a new idea for a game mechanic or a way we're going to implement this cool thematic thing in play. But I don't ultimately know for sure what's going to happen when it hits play with a bunch of people, uh, especially people who aren't me. <laughs> and so for me, I think as a, playing is vital to developing or writing. Uh, it's not sort of complete. You you can write. There are games people create that are not intended to be played. Um, and it sounds odd, but there are, again, the, the explosion of game design on social media and it's been incredible. It's created a dizzying array of types of games. And there are some people call it lyric games where the message is really in the game, in the writing of the game and how it makes you think as you read it. And, and if it doesn't work in play, that's not really the point. You know, um, those are quite rare, obviously. But generally, for me, I think, yeah, I think playing is important to understand games um, and making you a better developer, a better writer. Mm. Conversely, being a games writer does not make you a better player. <laughs> um, for various reasons and at various levels. I mean, it can do as a knock-on effect. Like if you are studying a lot of game systems to understand the mechanics and you're learning about why people are using the mechanics they are and you're understanding how this kind of stuff unfolds at the table, then you can take that information and improve your play at the table. You know, you might be sitting down going, oh yeah, actually, I think the reason why I'm finding this not very satisfying, this game I'm playing, is because the spotlight time for the players is all skewed, you know, uh, and the game's, just, the game's mechanics are dumping all the stuff on this player, really, you know, or I'm having a hell of a time running this game as a games master because I don't like the workload it's giving me as the GM or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so in doing this stuff can expand, if, you know, rigorously reading around can expand your perspective and your perception of how games should and can be played. But you don't have to be a games writer or designer to do that. Hmm. You can just read all these games anyway if you're a keen gamer, you know, and yeah. walk away from it going, actually, these are these are cool ideas. I think 
writing games and designing games expands your understanding of game design, unsurprisingly, and can help you even further. But I don't think in the moment-to-moment aspects of playing it, it necessarily means you are going to be better. Um, and, and that's quite hard for me to sort of quantify because it, it, it's the full gamut from if you're an asshole, right, <laughs> and you're writing great games, but you're still an asshole to deal with at table, no one's going to want to play with you, no matter how great the games you're writing are, you know, um, all the way to, you know, you may just have already found the thing in games you really like mm. and that makes you happy and the kind of character you like to play, the kind of action you enjoy. And then you're writing these other games that sort of put what you like into play, but it's not it's not changing what you like. Mm. So if you're already happy with your games and you feel you're in the right place, then there's no, there's no there's no sort of eternal treadmill of being a better player. Ultimately, as a player, what matters is, are you walking away from that table feeling satisfied and happy? Mm. Um, I'm not going to say enjoyment, because some games aren't necessarily enjoyable in the moment, but they can be... They, you can walk away from going, that was intense and that was good. Mm. And the other aspect of this is, were the other people at the table walking away from it satisfied with how it went? Mm. Um, and I don't think you need to be a game designer to, to to play or run great games. No, no, definitely. And certainly in the games that we played, the werewolf game in particular, that was such an intense experience. Mm. And you're not every session was a barrel of laughs although most of them <laughs> no. were but mm. the story was very dark obviously it's a personal horror themed mm. game so it was it was very dark and intense and there were some yeah. you know tearful moments and some angry moments and yeah it was but what a bonding experience as well absolutely and it and it was memorable it really had an impact i'm gonna borrow a term from that for me originated from live action role play um so live action role play for the don't know is the bit one way you dress up as your characters and you go in a field with your fake weapons and you play your wizards and your sorcerers and all that Uh, i'm i'm only saying it slightly mockingly because i really enjoy it uh, and i think the harp is great um there's a term from that that i i experienced from there but it is relevant in tabletop role playing called bleed um people can get really into their characters in the moment of it um, you know, especially LARP is often about very intense stuff. It's, um, empire is politicking, socialising, all sorts of philosophy as well as violence and war. And people get into character like an, like a character actor, you know, like like certain actor really getting into their persona and they play that character. And, you know, you want to maintain careful lines in your behaviour and what you're doing, that you always understand it's a game. But you can walk away from intense situations with those feelings bleeding over from the character to yourself, you know. And... That happens in tabletop as well, um, and it's it's it can be pretty heavy going. You know, if you play through a scenario with some really intense material, either because it relates to the history of the game and your character within it, or because it's material that you personally find very evocative in some way, um, good or bad, and you can walk away from a table going, "Whoa, I need to, I need to chill. I need to de to wind down. I need to let this out." And it's intense, and it's something people often intentionally seek out with these games and it's one of the reasons they play them is they want to feel those kind of perspectives and impressions and stuff often in a relatively safe environment just to say that i've got a laundry list of phobias you know phasmophobia one i'm terrified of deep water and things in them um i actually quite like it when people running games put water related horror stuff in there because it works very effectively on me but i know that it's not real 
It's not going to. So for me, that's very effective at evoking a real sense of fear and horror. It's why people watch horror movies because they want to be scared. Mm. Um, that said, something very important in role playing games in recent years that's really been pushed forward to a very thorough approval is what's called safety tools in gaming. Because it used to be there was no real thought of that. But now people say, you know, think about what your players can and can't handle, get their consent for stuff that's going to be intense or is material that they might have difficulties with. Figure out safety tools at the table so that if someone's actually going, okay, this is actually going places I don't really want to have to deal with, especially in you know, days well with a lot of stresses and strains on everybody, there's ways they can go, oh, red flag, let's just not quite go that way, shall we? And mm -hmm. I think it's part of the maturity of the medium of games is those tools being put in, that the acceptance is that, yes, games can evoke these really strong feelings, and that can be great. But if you're going to play with that kind of intensity, you need to have the tools to do so in a way that everyone's happy with and everyone's safe with, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and there has been a backlash to that because obviously plenty of people go, oh, I don't need safety tools in my games. And then you're fine, you don't need them, but plenty of people do want them and do use them. And I think it's a very good development um, to let everyone engage in these games in a way that they're going to get the most out of them and they're going to get some of these potentially intense experiences without feeling unsafe or you know and every, there's plenty of gamer horror stories about people joining awful groups you know mm. where, where, where where people act like real again assholes i don't know how much i can swear on this podcast you know Carry on. <laughs> oh complete fucking wankers you know <laughs> who will put people through you know who will basically bully people through the games and you know uh, and that's something i'm to all too many people have had an experience of and it's something that obviously we should there should, we, we don't want to happen at all hmm. um so for me that's been a very interesting development in the last few years is that really coming to the fore and people talking a lot more about how to do play these games safely in a way to get the most out of them uh, without feeling ultimately at risk or you know minimizing the chances of people playing in in dare i say in an, an abusive way mm. exploiting games for a, an opportunity to you know be assholes to people yeah so you mentioned larping and so i just want to go into that a little bit how how does um creating a live action role-playing game plot differ from writing a book mm. <laughs> a live action role-playing game it's 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 so different from writing for a book it's really different from writing for a role-playing game it is it's crazy because it is a situation where you put a plot out there and you rapidly lose any control over what the players do with it um so it, it would be like going saying you got i've got this idea for a book right okay and there's gonna be this this hobbit with this ring and you walk into the room of a rowdy teenage and you go okay hobbit with a ring uh wh what the fuck happens next and and just let them just go bananas with it and they're running off and soon the hobbit is set fire to mount doom uh is riding velociraptors and and telling everybody that actually sauron is the good guy and they're you know or whatever it's 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 bizarre because with a fest larp, which is the kind of larp I'm running for, you have up of a thousand people in a field, all playing characters, politicking and manoeuvring, and you are putting out there some non, some what are called NPCs, some some basic acted roles from the cast and crew, uh, with some um, essentially uh, instigating events or instigating things to kick the conflict off, mm -hmm. and then it goes wild. So you might go, well, you know, you're playing the high and mighty of this grand this grand empire. Well, here are the ambassadors from one rival nation who want you to um, sell out this other rival nation for here is a big bag of gold. And then you send on the embassies from the other one. The ambassador's going, well, yeah, but could you actually screw on these guys? And, and within 
24 hours, there will be people on the field swearing blind <laughs> the complete opposite of what the NPCs have been telling people. Um, and you as a game runner will have no idea if they are doing it because they are being clever and manipulative and they're trying to lead all the other players off the trail of the plot that they are trying to control or if they genuinely believe this um, messages go around the field and by the time they come back to you they're, they're completely the opposite of how they started um so so basically creating a plot for this really what it's all about is it's about creating um something that will have the most impact for the most players which doesn't mean every plot has to be massive, but rather that for the effort you put in, you want it to be, if you've got a thousand people in the field, you don't want a plot that just affects two people and they're never going to tell anyone about. That's a mm. lot of effort from the plot team with props and acting crew and all that for, for no great effect. But you want it to stir knock-on effects. And that could be conflict. That could just be thinking, making people think about something that maybe they haven't thought about before and folding it and how do they think of other things? You know, if everyone goes, oh, actually, you know, this this forest of magical butterflies is under th is a major source of our crushed magical butterfly pigment for our magical weapons, you know, is under threat. Actually, that changes how we've got to think about how this w whole war front works because suddenly we can't supply all the, the soldiers with magic weapons anymore, you know, and that might in plot just be someone going on to tell someone else who has a keen thing about magic butterflies going i've got to tell you man there's a blight ripping through this forest can you find a wizard who can cure it and that's a very small plot in terms of the direct people involved but then it ripples out and they're going oh there's blights out there you know what's knock-on effects going to be and someone who wants that whole war front to crumble is they're going screw them curse the forest <laughs> more kill all the butterflies how can we do this just from you saying that there's a problem with some completely imaginary butterflies that will never appear in the field but is in this <laughs> theoretical fiction of the world that yeah. the people are apparently supposed to be concerned about um so you put stuff out there, you want to create conflict, you want to create knock-on effects, you want to create the most game for the most people. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't plot out an arc because you can't. <laughs> you cannot say, we're going to do this thing with the butterflies and the players are going to heroically deal with it. And then the the evil butterfly lord is going to turn up next time as the next up because the players might turn up to just blow the whole forest up. They might go, we're burning it. We don't want the blight the to spread. Um and in, in a good LARP, you're facilitating a lot of these options for the players to do responsibly to the world. So it's it's so wildly different. You know, you you plot uh, the your plot of a novel or a book or a piece of fiction. You know, you're working out what's going to happen. Whereas this is just setting the cat amongst the pigeons and seeing what the feathers left afterwards and going, <laughs> okay, what do we build off this now? You know, yeah. okay, the players burned down the forest of butterflies. Well, what does this mean? You know, impact. <laughs> Firstly, it's completely screwed the magical butterfly pigment production right but also there's a bunch of angry peasants going someone just burnt down our source of timber in, and you and you build off iteratively like that mm. um in a way i suppose what, what would be the closest thing in fiction to it is is that um collaborative you know when some one person writes a chapter hands it on to the next next person writes a chapter you mm. know that kind of thing um because you just cannot tell what is going to come out the other end of it and that's why it's fantastic um mm. It does mean sometimes you'll put what you've, you've crafted, a lovingly crafted a plot about, you know, rival feuding ex-lovers in these knightly houses who want to gather supporters for their cause from different factions of the field. And you put it out there and it sinks like a trace and nobody cares. <laughs> and that itself is an opportunity because you might have them come back later going, well, since you all spurned us, we went and hired all these mercenaries and, you know, or, or, or whatever. But sometimes it also you have to be very ready with these plots to cut them and go it didn't work the players aren't interested well let's go and create something else they are interested in mm. um you know obviously in a novel you can't if you've been laying down long-running 
plot threads for something momentous if you drop it all the readers are going to go hold on there's a plot <laughs> hole here but in a field of a thousand people they don't care if it wasn't interesting to them in the first place then they're not probably not ever going to remember it mm. um so it, it's it's a bit chaotic it's a bit kind of it's it's straight cat herding basically <laughs> yeah which is rather what it's like trying to get writers to agree to do something <laughs> yeah um okay so you do also write fiction Mm -hmm. so uh talk to me a bit about what you're working on now okay um this is a bit tricky um i i have to because the main the main fiction i'm writing on now is a tie-on tie-in novel for a game line trinity continue me on I'm allowed to say I'm doing that. Um, uh, the details, the, the certain, basically certain details I can't tell you because they're under NDA, um, which is, I suppose, an aspect rolling back very briefly to the other question of what's it like to work with licenses and things is sometimes, you know, um, uh, you obviously most writers aren't going to be out there going, well, I'm halfway through a book and I want to tell you the whole plot. But, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it, it's a bit, with this, it's a bit more, you know, I've signed documents and things that mean I, I've got to keep quiet about certain things um it probably helps that i haven't finished writing the first draft yet so uh, <laughs> there's some things i can't tell you yet because i haven't hammered them all out yeah. um but yeah so so the thing i'm writing like on a day-to-day basis my current priority is writing this this draft so i'm doing a first draft of this and this for me goes quite interesting raises some interesting questions uh you know i'm writing uh, this this tie-in novella 40,000 words for a science fiction setting. It's, I, I'm also working on that line in the game as a game designer and writer. Um, so I'm very familiar with it. But um, for me, tie-in fiction has a very interesting question that I can't really say I know the answer to yet, uh, which is to what extent should, I, should you write it as if you are writing something new? Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, if, if if you pick up a Star Wars time fiction book and you read it, then there's there's a Jedi with lightsaber. You know what a Jedi with lightsaber is. They don't need to go. This is what a Jedi is. This is what a lightsaber is. There's that attached cultural uh, signifiers. People know it, or uh, mm-hmm. but you know the question is so so. But but should you anyway? You know, um, there's there's a certain amount of show don't tell as a, as a guideline for that a lot of writers follow anyway. But mm-hmm. if I am writing a book about uh, a setting with these scion, these psychic heroes. Um, do I need to early on in this when I'm describing what is going on? Do I need to say this is what one of these? This is what a scion is, mm. you know? Um, or do I assume that the people picking up this book, this tie-in book, which is being released, like it's a kick. In this case, it's a Kickstarter stretch goal, bone, you know, thing fulfillment. That they probably know this stuff already because mm. they're people buying tie-in fiction for a game line yeah you know so there's that element of um how how familiar do you assume readers are going to be with it how 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 free do you feel to um just go with it and go oh, no they know what this is and how or to go you know um actually i should i should let that and one of the ways you know for me there's there's questions of perspective you know from the character's perspective is going to affect that because if you're looking from a first person perspective you're writing in that then what the character thinks uh, about these things is going to be a bit more i suppose natural flow wise mm-hmm. um or are you writing in third person and then and then is it a bit omniscient narrator suddenly blocking in a chunk of text about how there are eight psi orders in the world breaking up the types of sonic power and this that and the other um so yeah that's that's one of the things that's sort of bugging me at the moment and i don't I have an answer to it. It's just something I've been knocking around in my head a lot for that. But um, mm. other than that, in in this case, you know, it's it's a fairly con- for me what I would consider a fairly 
Oh, my, my, just as a warning, my internet connection is apparently unstable. So if I suddenly start <laughs> jolting, juddering or crackling, as things pinged up, then that'll be why. Okay. So for me, it's been fairly conventional writing process. I've, so my approach generally is, you know, I've, like many artists, I've tried different ways of plotting and planning, writing out books. And the one I generally fall on to the, for the, this kind of thing is um, I will work through a rough idea of what I'm doing in very broad strokes and then I will write and the writing will fill out and produce some surprising details as I go. And I may then need to work back through that and write them back in, just in the first draft, not in general revisions. You know, some people, they will do loads of details and plan it, and then exactly what happens fine. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I've, I've accidentally introduced an extra, an extra antagonist who actually makes complete sense. So I'm glad I did it, but I didn't think about that in the, in the beginning. Um, <laughs> and now I know. And I, okay, that, that kind of works. So mm. it's, uh, for me, it's, uh, writing something like this is, is like discovering it as I go to some extent yeah you know i'm going to learn stuff about the character and i'm going to learn stuff about um uh, what's going on a bit beyond what i've already planned and that's that's pretty great mm. um the thing with something like this is is obviously i'm i'm, I'm writing it to come you know production company deadlines yeah um so uh, it, it actually follows the exact same process more or less as any other role-playing game book that i'm doing for this company would that is to say there's an outline, which is done by me in this case, uh, and then I'm writing it. And these phases of drafts, editing, development and drafts are just as if it was a role-playing game book, except the people doing this are, you know, they are writers themselves and they are familiar with fiction works and, and doing this. But it's kind of interesting just to follow exactly the same template as if I was writing some some other book, for, for some other game product mm. in that respect. Um, that's, so that's the, the big thing there that I'm that I'm working on. Uh, fiction-wise at the moment. I have some ideas from short story fiction that I'm always trying to find. The problem I have with short story fiction is I have a very strong idea for it pop up. I, know I should write this and I have no time to write it. <laughs> and by the time I write one, I have time to write it. I'll have no enthusiasm for it and I'll have a new short story idea instead. Yeah. Uh, I am working long-term on building the outline for the sort of the rough sketch for a, a sort of novel-length manuscript for um, something that I would guess i titled sort of a, a weird fiction uh sort of setting um i uh for quite a while i've written a lot of body horror in some of the game lines i've been writing for and i enjoy it. i'm incredibly squeamish um uh, and but i like writing body horror i hate watching films with it in but i like <laughs> writing it and so for this i actually the part that was by for this was i thought sat and thought why don't i just turn some of this stuff into why don't i just write a quite a body horror ific full-length manuscript of fiction mm. um so i'm currently planning that out um plotting it out it's very slow going just tapping away at it from time to time and the problem for me with this kind of uh, my own fiction if you like fiction that isn't tying into an ip or that isn't part of something i am being paid already to write because mm. uh, the advantage you know, the advantage of the time fiction i'm writing is, is, is i have a contract that will pay me set amounts of set times and stuff so mm. uh, it's nice to have money and food on the table and other stuff you know if, if I, i'm not getting paid any person you know who, who is who is um, pushing me to do is me um and so that's always tricky just if you have a schedule full of other writing finding the creative time and energy to spare for uh, something that is, is is something i want to do but it doesn't have that necessary immediate return um is difficult and and something certainly i've found is that with a what is essentially not, not quite idea it's freelance but something of a day job of writing including currently writing fiction uh to order if you like is that it 
doesn't leave me an awful lot of energy for writing for my own creative energy outside of that work um you know and and that is a risk as i said before you can get burned out you can feel um you know that you need time and distance from something to to appreciate it again mm. um which i'm hoping it's not going to happen again <laughs> that i won't need time but but uh, but i have increasingly found i need to be stricter with myself about enforcing time off and time away from stuff and just hard limiting you know going no i have to take i have to take a holiday now um you know i've as i found recently i've a very brief um you know holiday recently just to, to go and visit a parent uh, um and uh and then back again but even that alone was just enough of a not sitting in the same room in front of the same laptop every day mm. just to break that monotony and give you a bit more energy to crack on with it and it was what i needed and i've been cracking on with this current manuscript playing through it much much faster than i was before you know i was really struggling so mental stuff is really important to this to my mind so i'm wildly off topic at this no point, it's fine um, so yeah it, i mean from from a writing point of view uh, you know um i've got my hands full with what everything i've got to do and um there comes a point you know as every writer knows there comes a point you've just got to do the bloody writing uh, <laughs> it's the hard bit you know yeah you've got to you've just got to sit down and, and make the words happen on the on the, on the page mm. so um i i could talk to you for hours and hours um but <laughs> we have been talking for an hour now so i think we'll okay. maybe start to wrap things up um i do have a question from one of our patrons uh, Joe asks, how do you work across so many mediums and manage to keep it all straight in your head? Is it as simple as just doing one thing at a time? That, I mean, that, that obviously it varies a lot how much I have to do at one time. Um, you know, I, I'm a freelancer technically, so I work on a contract basis. And sometimes I will not have an awful lot of contracts to deal with. And there'll be one book relating to one, uh, you know, license, one line, one IP. Um, and that's fine. And the other time you have five deadlines breathing down your neck and they're all for different game lines um it's it, i focus on one thing at a time you know i'm not trying to write three different documents at once um at this at the exact same moment but i mean the tricky thing is you know with a lot of these you do need to reference a wider body of fiction or established law for a game you know and rules if i'm writing a book for for eon in the trinity continuum i need to know the trinity continuum system rules i need to know what's been written for eon i need to make sure i don't cross-reference that most i mean to some extent that's the developer's job to pick up if i make a mistake but there shouldn't be many mistakes reaching the developer if i'm a good writer right mm. and that i it's funny i don't have a massive issue with that i can i'm quite good at just switching between systems i can keep a lot of game systems in my head and i can switch between them fairly easily mm. um even fairly similar ones which obviously holly will understand this but might sound a bit weird to other people when i say the difference between the chronicles of darkness and the world of darkness system for <laughs> example right a, a lot of writers do struggle if they're working between two of them to keep the two separate and you start getting mistakes creeping from one to the other of very slight different rule systems for me that's not really a problem um i just the way my mind categorizes things i guess um at times where there is a bit of um where there's a lot of pressure on me and a lot of deadlines breathing down my neck and I, I need to keep things separate i'm fortunate in that the different games and things i'm working on are very different in nature most of the time you know an optimistic science fiction space opera setting and a blood and guts 
intense personal horror urban setting they're just so different that i don't really get them make me when if i'm writing for one one day i'm writing for the other the other i'm not really feeling the mix up there there's also the element that for me the best writing has common underlying elements you know where whatever you're writing for it's about writing material that is dripping with with use game ability story from a from a structural point of view you're looking at material that has hooks it has to be evocative um regardless of whether you're talking about vampires or aliens it has to have stuff that is going to appeal to people um, from the from from a playing level going oh i can see this being something i want in my game or this makes me think about how i would play this or how we bring this to the table um so i think the skill set being obviously the same kind of thing under underneath means it's fairly easy to switch from one to the other from my point of view but generally how do i keep it separate yeah i'm work on different things at different times work on very different things in general so you're not just writing slight variations of the same thing on a dozen different game lines if only because i mean you'd get bored by the time you're rehashing the same themes for the fifth time for a slightly different game like you probably wouldn't be very interested in what you're writing anyway and if you're not interested in what you're writing it tends to show through in the writing you know it's quite i'm not gonna say it's quite if if you write if you write a game it is relatively that it is a trapped fall into where you you can be phoning it in right but it does show if you do that because it's it's the kind of thing where you can sometimes get the same sort of structuring going go, oh well this is the same this is another game i can just write the same kind of material rehashed but it just it just shows and it, uh, you, you know you're not going to get very far with that so um for me the, the enthusiasm for it helps me keep things separate and um and i and the very unhelpful answer of i guess it's just the way my mind works <laughs> which i apologize it's not more you know applicable for other people <laughs> But um, I, I just don't have, uh, you know, uh, if, if you give me a bunch of stuff like, oh, you need to fix the wiring in the shower switch and you need to get that bit thing repainted and get the grouting changed. I'm like, it's too many things. I can't handle them all. But if you tell me to master the five different game systems and wildly various, I'm like, yeah, that's that's not a problem. I can do that. <laughs> Excellent. We have one final question, which we ask all of the guests on Great Writer Share, which is why do you write? I would go compl- more barking mad if I didn't, um, or I just do. I mean, if I the, when I have worked long periods of time at places that are not very creative and give me the creative outlet, I then end up writing because the ideas just cram themselves into my head and they're going to go somewhere, right? And eventually, I'll have the time and I'll start writing them out. Why do I write? Because it's just kind of what I do. Again, it's a bit of a cop out answer, but I, it, for me, it's a it's a it's a very meaningful and powerful outlet for the chaos that's in my head um you know i spend a lot of time in my head one way or another and writing puts that out of my head it lets me take things out of my head and take them out of that chaos i also write because i am massively massively eager for validation and i i enormously enjoy it when i put something out for a game and someone goes oh this is really cool that that's that that's what i I, it's because i crave that kind of positive reinforcement it's probably not healthy but it regardless it's that is a major thing for me is that element of just the the joy of having people go this is cool and the greater joy of people going i had these great moments with this you know this this had an impact on me yeah um you know, so yeah, I just a, a glutton for I'm a glutton for praise, vain, egotistical, and needy. That's why I write. <laughs> Brilliant, best answer ever. <laughs> 
Thank you. Okay, we have come to the rapid fire round. Ten questions. Don't overthink. Are you ready? Okay. Yes. Tabletop no. or LARP? Go. <sighs> Tabletop. Favourite sci-fi? Oh, oh, Jesus. Um, literally, I've just had a car crash in my head of various different things, and I can't pick any of them out right now. Wow, uh, that's... <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I generally, it's... I can't pick one. I'm sorry. It's, I'm trying to process too many thoughts in my head, and none of them are coming to the front. A lot you can of pass. Sci-fi. It's okay. <laughs> yep. Pass. Okay. The last book that made you laugh? Hmm... What's the last book? Okay, I am. uh, So my eldest daughter is a huge reader. She reads loads of stuff at the moment. Um, The uh, but I am reading. I'm still reading a bedtime story to her every night, and I'm currently reading some series about the 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 school for good and evil or something. And um, and it was one of the books. Now you know, you know, it's 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 aimed at kids, but let's face it, adult writers often put genuinely funny yeah. things that the adults will appreciate in them as well I, I think something in that made me laugh not that long ago okay sweet or savory savory how many languages do you speak uh, define speak because <laughs> because hold theory, a brief conversation a very brief conversation at least three okay one thing from your bucket list um yeah, I'd like to go back to my country of birth and visit again, Thailand. Mm-hmm. A word that makes you cringe. Oh, Jesus. Um, uh, uh, nope, pass. I'm just <laughs> blanking again. Okay. Favourite season? Hmm. I th- think autumn, but it's a, you know, it's a close run thing with spring. Cats or dogs? Cats. Scariest game you've ever played? Hmm. I am a massive coward. <laughs> so most scary games. Like, uh, um, uh, uh, quite, I mean, I've played quite a few. Um, and I'll be honest, all of them. If it's a scary game with jump scares, then I am probably cowering behind my chair. <laughs> Wonderful. That's 10 questions. Thank you very much. One final bonus question. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Okay. Well, I am on Twitter at Acrozatarim, <laughs> which I, which people always like, have what, the, the what, the who, the how do you spell that? Yeah. Send uh, me it in say? written form yeah, and I'll put yeah. it in the show notes. <laughs> um, I am often floating around some of the game forums like RPG Net and Onyx Path Publishing's forums and increasingly Discord channels as well. Um, and I am currently streaming a well for Forsaken role-playing game, uh, Chronicle, uh, sort of ongoing game, uh, which my friends at Palio Gaming on Twitch, who usually do computer games, but one of them's playing it, so they're streaming that for me, and that's happening most weekends. We're about to, we finished the first season, we're gearing up for the second season, the second story arc of that at the moment, uh, called Very, it's called Very Angry Dogs. It's about a pack of American werewolves in deepest, darkest Dorset, dealing with, uh, <laughs> occult horror paranoia and extreme culture shock um (laughs) and uh, yeah i mean that that's that's pretty much it for my for my internet presence i think wonderful thank you so much chris this has been an absolute pleasure thank you very much holly 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Great Writers Share podcast. Tune in next week when Dan will be interviewing Paul Michael Anderson. Don't forget, you can catch up on our entire backlist of episodes, plus get all of the backstage access, our Slack channel and more by joining our Patreon from as little as $1 a month. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash greatwritersshare. Until next time. Hi, this is Benjamin from the UK true crime podcast, They Walk Among Us. Want to see something scary? Shudder is the ultimate streaming service for fans of horror, thrillers and the supernatural. Shudder offers an unbeatable selection from Hollywood favourites and cult classics to original series and critically acclaimed new genre films you won't find anywhere else. Explore the best collection of horror that pushes boundaries, showcases bold original storytelling and offers something new to watch every week. Available ad-free, on-demand, and through the platforms you're already on. Shudder. So good it's scary. Sign up at Shudder.com.